Now, this is not exactly a touchy-feely part of God's word, right? I mean, Jesus is being um, very straightforward here. And before we get into our passage, I want to make three observations, quick observations about our passage as a whole, because I don't want you to miss this or miss these. And the first thing I want you to observe is that relationships, your relationships matter to Jesus. Your marriage, your friendships, your relationships with your co-workers. Uh, specifically, relationships with people who are difficult. Uh, people maybe you're struggling to get along with. Uh, someone you have something against or who might have something against you. People who irritate you. That's the focus here. Now, we live today in an increasingly individualistic culture. That's part of the Western fabric of civilization. So we're isolating and we're individualistic. Uh, and our culture today, generally speaking, is all about me, myself, and I. It's the culture others have called it the culture of the big me. Everything's about me. And here in these six verses, Jesus says, no. I am a relational God. Your relationships matter to God, and God matters to your relationships. And I say this because if we don't understand the priority Jesus is placing on relationships here, then we will have no reason to be different than the world. If Jesus is saying anything, he's saying our relationships matter to God. The second thing I want you to see in terms of the passage as a whole is that it's experience matters to God. Experience matters to Jesus. Specifically, how we experience relationships. Christianity is never merely something to believe. It's someone to experience in the context of life with others. The end game of our union with Christ is communion with Christ and communion with others. So what we have going on here is that Jesus is inviting us to experience upside down, totally countercultural relationships to experience them. And the third thing I want you to see in terms of the passage as a whole is that truth matters to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is so direct here. He calls us hypocrites. He tells us when it comes to the relational fodder of life, there are certain, certain things that are right, certain, certain things that are wrong, certain things that are life-giving, certain things that, are, uh, uh, that kill relationships. So ha having said that, relationships matter, experience matters, truth matters all to Jesus. Now what I want to do is I want to go into our passage and I want to wrestle with a couple of things. First of all, what should our relationships be? What should they look like? And then second, why is it that we so often fail? And then third, 
What can we do? How can we change? So let's start first with what our relationship should be. And this is verses 1 and 2, the first two verses. And what Jesus tells us is that our relationship should be characterized by grace, not judgment. Grace, not judgment. One of the ways you can know you're following Jesus, one of the ways you can know you're living an upside-down life, is if you're judging others charitably, not critically. And I say this because judging here and judging in the Bible, for that matter, has a range of meanings, but there's two primary senses. And for our purposes, one is good and one is bad. So positively, uh, judging means evaluating, using your mind. It means you discern. We do this every day. And in John chapter 7 and verse 24, uh, Jesus says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus is endorsing all these kind of judgments. So when Jesus says, judge not, he does not mean uh, never give people your opinion. He's not saying you never can disagree with someone. He is not saying um, that you never speak up about something that God declares to be a sin. I mean, this is how Jesus spent his entire ministry. In verse 6, as we have just read, he calls some people dogs and pigs. Then when we go down to verse 15 in chapter 7, Jesus commands us, watch out for false prophets. And he calls them wolves in sheep clothing. Now today, our culture tells us to be tolerant. And the assumption is because God is does not exist because there is no God. Uh, We have no business telling anyone that their behavior or beliefs are right or wrong. So we are just to be tolerant about everything. Jesus Christ here is saying the opposite. To follow Christ is not to suspend your intellect. It is not to no longer think deeply. So if Jesus isn't talking about judgment in that sense, a more positive sense, what does Jesus mean here when he says, do not judge? And what Jesus means is, do not allow your evaluation of another to cross some sort of invisible line so that evaluation becomes condemnation. So we've got an evaluation at this end of the continuum, and we've got condemnation at the other, and Jesus is saying, don't cross that invisible line. Uh, where you're full of condemnation, you're full of spite, you're full of hate. And, and that's the negative sense. So in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, Jesus, or not Jesus, Paul is speaking, and Paul says, why... Why in the world do you judge a brother or a sister? Why why in the world do you treat other people with contempt? For we will all uh, stand before God's judgment seat. 
Now, uh, this word Paul uses, contempt, is precisely what Jesus is talking about, this end of the continuum, where we hold others, we treat others with contempt. They said something we don't agree with. They, they did something that, uh, that bothers us. So instead of judging others critically, Jesus is saying here, judge others charitably. You see the best in people, not the worst. Uh, you extend grace, not judgment. It's Jesus restoring Peter after Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. It's Paul uh, affirming and thanking God for the Corinthian church after the Corinthian church repeatedly sinned and, and challenged and badmouthed Paul's authority, Paul's uh, leadership. Now, this is Jesus' point in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Uh, what Jesus is saying is in a, a, what Jesus is saying in effect is, how can you, a believer in Jesus Christ, who will never receive condemnation because of Jesus' work on the cross, where he bore that condemnation you deserve for you? How in the world, because you will never receive that condemnation, can you hold other people with contempt? And so when we move from evaluating to discerning to trashing, we've crossed this invisible line, and the invisible line is your attitude. Because over here, we're trying to understand with a view as followers of Christ to help, uh, to restore, uh, to speak the truth in love, uh, to take something that maybe is broken and, and to break through. But over here, at this end of the, uh, the continuum, either consciously or unconsciously, what, what we're doing is attempting to punish uh, to deflate, uh, maybe even to inflict pain, to make another look bad, or to write someone off. Well, he's just an idiot. Moron. And so I want to ask you, does Jesus Christ ever do that with you? Ever? Ever? Do not judge. Jesus is not saying, do not suspend your intellect. He is saying, do not look at people with contempt. Uh, Jesus is saying, what the Republicans said and did to the Democrats, what the Democrats said and did to the Republicans, you as a follower of Christ don't do. Uh, you don't badmouth or gossip about other students or at the office around the cooler. You don't throw other co-workers under the, tra un under the bus. You just don't do that. You speak positively and charitably. Now let me take this a step further. 
and, and apply this by going to Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You know the story. The story is about a son who rebels against his father, moves away to get as far away from his father as he possibly can, and destroys his life and squanders all his money in wild living, and then broken, he returns home to his father so he doesn't starve to death. And when he gets close to home, he sees his father running at him with open arms, full of love, full of grace. Now maybe you have an adult child a loved one, a friend who's a prodigal, who has moved to that far country emotionally or, or spiritually. And in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus' primary point is that we are all prodigals in the sense that we all, in different ways, turn our back on God. But God, through the work of Jesus Christ and the grace he extends as we've been singing about this morning, Arms are open, running to us in the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. But there's a sub-point in that parable of the prodigal son. And, and, and the sub-point is when your child wanders away from the faith, and you experience hurt and disappointment and rejection, you do not, you do not condemn, you do not cut off. You wait with open arms, just like the Father. And you keep open every possible connection. Uh, so your prodigal will know not only where home is, but he knows the lavishness of the love he or she will experience when they return. The parable of the prodigal son illustrates Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. You and I extend grace, not judgment. That's our disposition. That's what it means to live an upside-down life in the upside-down uh, kingdom. And we do it regardless of the pain, regardless of the rejection. So we go through life with our arms open, not our fists clenched. And your prodigal knows how much you love them, even though you disagree with them. He or she knows that they are your child. And you are there for them. And Jesus says, do not judge. Paul in some different places in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us love is patient, love, and, love is kind. He goes on and says, you know, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And then a little later he adds, it always protects, it always hopes, love always per perseveres. And Jesus is stating here negatively what Paul is stating positively. So that brings us to this second question. Why in the world uh, do we fail so much? Do little things become, little things become big things and, and, and a, 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 a little piece of dirt becomes an entire hill? 
Why is it that even as followers of Christ that our, that our thoughts and our words and our actions can often be so harsh? Why do our politicians get so ugly? Why do we say things on the internet that are absolutely devastating and cruel that we would never say to people face to face? Uh, why do we tend uh, to blow up, to chew people out, to write people off when there may be a thousand things going on in that person's life that we are not even aware of one of? So the question is, why do we fail? And Jesus moves on to answer that question in verses 3, 4, and 5. And he tells us our problem is pride. You and I have a plank in our eyes, and the plank is pride. So follow with me as I read beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. And, and, and here Jesus is saying uh, to his disciples, uh, uh, when you do this, you're just like the arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Four or five weeks ago, it was a Saturday morning, I was preparing my sermon and I was uh, running late, I was behind, uh, I had some things going on that day, and I was stressed. And all of a sudden, my left eye, which is my good eye, began to hurt. And it began to water, and I'm talking through my sermon, and, and it's hurting, and it's watering, and I, I realized the only way I could find relief was by closing my left eye. And so I went upstairs, found my wife, who's a physician, and said, hey, hey, Rhonda, uh, this is going on. What's going on? And she said, well, I don't know. Maybe you have something in your eye, but you better get to the Wheaton Eye Clinic before it closes. And, and being the humble, submissive guy, I said, no, thanks. I got to go downstairs. I got to work on this sermon. And I did. And that lasted about three and a half minutes. And 30 minutes later, I'm at the Wheaton Eye Clinic, and a physician is skillfully taking this little bitty splinter out of my left eye that I must have picked up working in the yard the day before. And the point I want to make is when you have a speck, when you have a splinter in your eye, it shuts down your entire life. There was no way I was going to get through that weekend if somebody didn't take that splinter out of my eye. And in the same way, when you treat other people with condemn, contempt, when you condemn them, when you write them off, that speck in your eye isn't a speck, that splinter isn't a splinter. Jesus says it's a plank, and the plank is your arrogance, your pride. 
And even though you and I tend to think, and this was me that Saturday morning, oh, this is no big deal. You know, I, I, I can get through this. Actually, it shuts down your entire life. And interestingly enough, you lose the ability to see people clearly. To see, to assess. To see life clearly. And, and it blinds you to how judgmental and disrespectful and unloving you are. Uh, so, for example, relative to this uh, blindness that this plank in our eye creates, uh, your desire, your one aspiration in life is to be successful. And that blinds you to the toll it's taken on your family. Or years ago, you were hurt, I mean deeply hurt, by a parent. And uh, the way you process this and anger and bitterness and pride, you're not even aware of how that interferes with your ability to work under other people, to respect authority. Or, or for you, maybe you're, you're a student and image is everything, appearance is everything. It's all about optics. And it blinds you to how fickle and faithless you are as a friend. And you have this thing in your soul. And it's called pride. It's over-desire. It's lust. It's an idol. And it lodges in your soul. And that speck, that splinter, as it did in my eye, becomes a plank. And you can't love, even though you think you're loving. And over time, you know what happens? You become a fault finder or a garbage collector. Negative, and you are the only, everybody else around you sees it, but you don't. So the reason we fail is because of the pride in our soul, this plank that Jesus is talking about, this self-righteousness. Man, I got this thing figured out. Now let's go on and ask the question, well, how do we overcome? How, how can we change? And I want to suggest Jesus is giving us two answers, one in verse 5 and one in verse 6. And according to verse 5, what Jesus is telling us we must do, we must take responsibility for, is taking on our pride. Jesus says, take out that plank. He's saying, attack your pride. Now, how do you and I attack our pride? Well, we name it, we own it, we confess it, we bring it to God. We ask God to change us. We don't pretend we're not arrogant. We don't pretend that we haven't been condemning. Man, we fall on our face metaphorically, and we bring it to God. And every time that demon raises its ugly head, you confess it. And then you grab passages, I mean, and you memorize passages in God's Word, verses on, on pride, and instead of listening to your pride, you take those verses and you talk to your pride, and, and you take the legs out of under your pride when your pride rears up. And you talk to others about it. You talk to, this is great conversation for your life groups. You know, when it comes to Matthew chapter 7, this is the way I condemn, this is the way I, I criticize, and you talk about it, and you talk about it openly. My wife, Rhonda, had been out of town most of last week. She got home, and one of the first questions she asked me is, well, what are you preaching on this Sunday? 
And I said, I'm actually in kind of a complicated, difficult passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, do not judge. And, and I paused, and I said to her, Rhonda, you know what? I have been so condemning, and I have been so critical, and at times so harsh, harsh with you in this blended family thing we have going on. And I want you to know I'm sorry. But the very thing I'm going to preach on is the thing I've been denying in our marriage. I said a couple other things, and Rhonda smiled, and Rhonda looked at me, and she said, Rob, I've been exactly the same way. And we had a life-giving conversation about our tendency to judge each other as spouses in the complexity of remarriage and bringing two large families together. When Jesus Christ says, take out your plank, he is saying, do that. He's saying, identify your areas of self-righteousness, the way you're critical, and name them and, and, and talk about them. That's verse 5. Now we're going to move on to verse 6. Because here in verse 6, Jesus tells us uh, another thing that we have the opportunity to do, and that is to look to Jesus. So we fight our pride and we look to Jesus. And so follow with me as I read verse 6. It's such a complicated verse. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Oh my, Jesus doesn't really talk like that. What is going on here? Jesus says, do not judge, and then he's making this judgment. And so we have a contradiction in the Bible. No, what we have is something brilliant. Jesus mentions a pearl. Let me talk, start with the pearl. Jesus mentions a pearl two times in the Gospel of Matthew. Here and in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Look at those two little verses. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought the pearl. This is the parable, pearl, it's the parable of the pearl of the great price. And in both Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 13, the pearl is the gospel. The pearl is the gospel of the kingdom, that the king has arrived, the king has come to save and to rescue from our relational disasters, our, our brokenness, our, our dysfunction. How? By laying down his life. And bearing the penalty of our brokenness, our sin, our dysfunction, our condemnation, our hate. And offering us this shared life with Jesus. I am in Christ. Jesus is in me. And so Jesus is talking about this pearl. Then Jesus talks about the dogs and the pigs here. And this is where it gets complicated because one view, and I think this view makes sense, is that what Jesus is saying is that the owners of these animals weren't doing their jobs. They weren't feeding them. They were giving them things they couldn't eat, sacred relics and pearls, things of value to be sure, 
but not food for these animals. And as a result, when these animals reach a certain point near starvation, they would turn on their owners and tear them to pieces. And so then the question is, well, who are the dogs and the pigs? And one answer to that question is that people who look at the gospel and don't see how it helps, how it meets their need. You know, I, man, I, I want to have fun on the weekends. I want to be able to sleep around. And if I, I come to Jesus at man, that's not going to help me do what I want to do. Or I want to get into this school. I want to get into this program. I want to reach this level in the corporation. I need to make these grades. I need to perform this way or, or, or that way. And how's Jesus going to help me do that? So no thanks. But if you look to Jesus and see Jesus as the pearl of infinite value, you will sell everything to get him, to gain him. So what Jesus seems to be telling us is that some uh, look at Jesus and see the wonder of forgiveness and see in Christ beauty and, and, and glory, and others look at Jesus and don't see that at all. So there's two applications, and then we're done. The first thing Jesus seems to be saying is don't rush the gospel. Jesus seems to be saying, so believe in me, so trust in me, that you never stop telling people about the gospel. You never stop inviting people to receive me as their Savior and their Lord. But at the same time, you always honor the pace of God in their life. You give people truth at a rate they can handle it. Lest they turn on you and tear you to pieces. And their anger is your fault. Yesterday, while I was praying, preparing this sermon, I got a text from somebody here at Wheaton Bible Church. And it illustrates this. After years of prayers following decades of pain, I was able to share the gospel clearly to my dad that inviting him to take communion after our service last Sunday, if Jesus was his Savior and Lord, dad did. Then join me in praying to receive Christ. He told me he loved me at the end and for the first time in as long as I can remember in his incontinent, disabled, dependent physical state, God gave him a moment of clarity and an openness I would have never, ever foreseen. I didn't like my dad for decades and I was so tempted to quit. But God said, go the distance. Go the distance. Speak up, but honor the pace of God in people's lives. Second, and we're done, revel in the gospel. Don't rush it, but revel in it. I mean, allow the gospel to thrill you. You see, all of us have planks of self-righteousness and, and pride in our, in our hearts and our souls. But as Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the woman caught in adultery at the end of that section, what did Jesus say to her? Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
And so when uh, I say look to Jesus, I want you to think. Now think about verse 6. I want you using your imagination to see Jesus as being trampled and torn to pieces in order to rescue you from your sin. And to the extent you see that and it grips your heart, then you will find an ability to do by the Spirit what you simply can't do on your own. And that is live a life of extending grace and not judgment. And so you travel through life with open arms, not clenched fists. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing, strong, direct section of your word, and I thank you for it. And I plead guilty. I am guilty as a pastor. I am guilty as a man. I am guilty as a father. I am guilty as a husband and a friend. And we all are. And yet knowing this, you came to us. And you took the condemnation we deserve on yourself. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, these children and students that are here this morning, that you by your spirit would enable them to so see the beauty of the gospel and our glorious union in Christ that we change. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction? Father, only you can make a passage about judgment, a passage about grace and the gospel. And we praise you for what you have done, what you will do, what you are doing in our lives today. And as we go, as we scatter after having gathered, that you would fill us that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're uh, lifting up Jesus and we're seeking the flourishing of the people around us. And all God's people said, amen. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. Have a great day.